Hi, Explorers. Thanks for listening to Kids Who Explore Parent Edition. Come along with us as we cover all corners of raising kids in the outdoors. Hi, I'm Adriana Scori. I'm a hiking mom in the Canadian Rockies, Mama to Turner, and CEO of Kids Who Explore. I'm Lauren Rodick Eberly. I'm mom to Collins. We love being outside and exploring between our two homes in Seattle, Washington, and Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Headster Kids is a street-inspired children's fashion headwear brand based in Canada. Their snapbacks are stylish with fun patterns and trends, and they have a great selection of winter tubes too. Headster caps are perfect for your kids for any occasion, whether playing, partying, or chilling. They will protect them from all weather conditions and will give them the perfect look you are looking for. Headster Kids collection has a little bit of everything to make both kids and parents happy. Head over to headsterkids.com and use the discount code KIDSWHOEXPLORE to receive 15% off. Russell Bruder was born and raised in Pincher Creek, Alberta. He moved to Calgary to acquire his Bachelor of Science from the UC. He's a lifelong outdoorsman. He's passionate about outdoor motorsports, hiking, camping, hunting, berry picking, and photography. He's an avid woodworker, happily married, and the father of 15-year-old twins. He is self-employed in the chemical vegetation control industry and as a snowmobile, ATV, and UTV safety instructor. His list of accreditations is extensive in everything from winter survival to ATV and snowmobile operations to first aid, CPR, GPS, map, and compass navigation, and avalanche safety. He has 23 years experience with Pincher Creek Search and Rescue and 30 plus years of snowmobile and ATV experience. This is Russell's first podcast, and my favorite message that I received from him was him telling me that his rural Wi-Fi, which is equivalent to black and white TV through rabbit ear antennas in 1982, is what we'll be using today. <laughs> so, Russell, thanks for joining me. Good to be here today. Yeah. So, wow, your bio is beyond impressive. <laughs> I've had a busy, like, busy life. I've enjoyed most of it. So, I was going to say, it seems like you've lived multiple lives in the outdoors. Well, I grew up in the outdoors, so it's it's passion for me, and I'm passing it on to my kids now too. So, yeah. And so, did you, did you grow up just being interested in everything you named? Like you just lived outdoors, well, basically. Grew up on the farm, so you know, outdoors was a necessity. That was the the daily life. And then my dad was really passionate about snowmobiling and camping, and and hunting so those traits all got passed down to my my brother and I for sure my sister not quite so much she's a little more uh, uh, urban than rural now so okay. um, you know and, and we still live out in the country we're actually on the same quarter section of land as my parents because they want to retire here forever so we're the we're the Oreo generation we got the kids below us and the parents above us so oh that is so nice to have the whole family together yeah yeah okay and then what made you navigate towards winter safety and specifically search and rescue so I guess the catalyst for a, a lot of my safety training has come through search and rescue. And the reason I got involved in that is, is a tragic story, believe it or not, unfortunately. Um, we lost an uncle and a good friend when I was 17 years old to an avalanche. And I was there the day they died. We were on a search um, and it was devastating for the family. And it certainly changed our perspective on uh, risk aversion and understanding just how dangerous, you know, winter recreation can be and avalanches in particular. So um, search and rescue officially kind of grew here. My dad was one of the founding members and a few other um, local interested parties. And when I came home from university and, and started company here, um, they needed somebody to start training the search and rescue volunteers to meet the standards required by RCMP and forestry and fish and wildlife. So uh, under the Canada Labor Code guideline, anybody required to use an off-highway vehicle for work must be trained in the use of that off-highway vehicle. 
So as a search and rescue volunteer, if the RCMP calls you out in the middle of the night to operate a snowmobile, you have to meet the same standard they do. And we didn't have an instructor in house. And my dad was, you know, old enough at the time, he wasn't interested in getting into that. So they asked me to go off and took a week's training to get my ATV instructor. And then about three or four years later, uh, the UTV instructor program finally got hammered out and I took it. And then in between, I took my snowmobile operator safety training program so that I could teach primarily search and rescue volunteers, get them accredited uh, to be able to be tasked by the different organizations. Wow. And how, how does it work then? If there's a search and rescue that needs to happen, they like, they literally could just call you in the middle of the night. Yeah. And it's yeah. normally the middle of the night, that old standard that will wait for daylight is long gone. They, they understand that um, your chances of survival are much better. The sooner somebody gets to you, especially when you're talking winter, cold, you know, hypothermia conditions, potential for avalanche, things like that. So um, as a volunteer, you maintain a certain level of training. You have to have a certain number of courses so that you can communicate well and, and know how to speak and what not to say. Um, you know, when you're operating the public, ask somebody to the communications liaison, if there's family members there, if there's RCMP there, because it's a stressful situation for anybody that is lost. And as a searcher, you, you have to meet a, a certain level of professionalism. So, you know, we volunteer our time for training, for everything else. We're not paid. Uh, we get a little bit of reimbursement for our time and our equipment, things like that. Um, but like I said, the standard that, that we have to meet is the same standard as if an RCMP sent a team out to look for somebody. So that's kind of where I fell into that role. And then I got involved with the executive uh, after university and, and worked my way up and was president for a year and then stayed on the training committee for quite a few years. And then I still offer training courses to RCMP officers, forestry, fish and wildlife enforcement officers in those motorized pieces of equipment, how to safely operate them, whether it's winter or summer use and the RCMP or the uh, search and rescue staff as well. So Okay. So, so what would a search and rescue day look like for you? Like, would it usually just be that one call and then you're going to help with that one thing? Or sometimes in winter, is it, you know, just also helping people out of situations? Uh, it, it, it's highly varied. There's never two the same. So it's up to the RCMP or the tasking agency that gets contacted. So it's jurisdictional at times, you know, we're right on the Alberta BC border. Uh, once you get a little ways west to here. So if it's on the other side of the, of the continental divide in BC, then it's Fernie search and rescue that responds first. And if they think that a team from this side of the continental divide could get to the area closer then they would liaise with Pinch Creek search and rescue through the RCMP. And then they would task a team. So they would go through their list of volunteers. Okay. Who has the ability to, to lead a snowmobile rescue? How many people can we put on? And they would start making phone calls and it can be at 11 o'clock at night, or it could be at three o'clock in the morning. It, it really depends on the situation that's evolving. Um, and then you're either available to go or you're not, depending on what's going on in your world and you're tasked and head out and, and get your communications gear up. And, and oftentimes in the mountains, you know, you, you set a game plan and this is what we're going to do. And this is the, the drop dead time by which you have to be back. If we don't hear from you, you know, you can lose communications, whether it's satellite comms or radio comms, we have issues with all of that uh, in mountain rescue in this part of the world, for sure. Right, because even when there's people that are going out to do a search and rescue, they probably need another team watching out for them too. Right? Yeah, there, there's always an, a command overhead structure and they want to know what's going on and where people are and, and what's progressing as things are evolving. So, you know, the first task is, can we find any sign of where they went? The second task is, can we actually locate them? And then the third task is, do they need help? How much help do they need and how urgent is that help? And then what resources do we have to bring in for that? Um, we've landed Stars Air Ambulance in the, in the mountains before. 
um, for pretty serious situations. We've been involved in fatality recoveries. So things that didn't turn out well um, and everything in between. Lots of times you're just getting in your truck, just getting out the door, heading to town and your phone rings and the missing person has wandered back into town, finally found a phone. That's the best kind of search. So, you know, the worry ends quickly. Your family's not worried about how long you're going to be out. Um, And then there's other searches that evolve and grow where you may have six or eight or nine different search organizations from around the province putting resources into it because it goes into multiple days. Um, You know, one small town volunteer organization just can't put the resources needed for the overhead structure and the ground pounding teams and the rest that's required for those people. So, you know, we've worked searches uh, along near K country where we've had Medicine Hat, Lethbridge, Calgary, Foothill Sar, Pincher Creek, um, a number of other organizations, plus all of the, you know, the official bodies in the province, the forestry, the fish and wildlife, the RCMP involved too. So those ones are, you know, they're uh, much more involved for sure. So do you find usually these search and rescues are people doing recreational activities or sometimes is it anything it, else? It's, it's very rarely industry people because they all have safety plans and policies in place. Okay. They have communication plans and policies in place, but it tends to be recreationalists who either um, got in over their head, whether it was weather conditions or lack of preparedness or a general lack of ability, um, you know, and it's of no fault of their own things just kind of transpire where they can no longer get themselves home and they may not be able to communicate that with anybody. Yeah. So it's, it's generally a loved one at home going, Hey, my dad and his whole group went out. They were supposed to be back, you know, Sunday afternoon and we haven't heard from them. It's now 11 o'clock at night. So that, that gets to the RCMP first generally. And then that has to go, they trickle down and go, okay, well, we go through this list. Are, are these people prepared? Are they experienced? Do they know the area? Does anybody have medical conditions? There are certain red flags that necessitate a, a much more expedited response than others. So if you have, you know, my wife, we, we, we kind of have this running joke. If my brother and I and our riding buddies don't come home, you don't get to call anybody till 10 o'clock tomorrow morning because there isn't anybody left in town to come look for us. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's literally, I, I know you're going to be worried. But if we can't get home, there's a good reason for it. And we will work our way out at daylight, you know, because yeah. we've had the, the trauma in our, in our past where our risk aversion is quite high, where we're not willing to take those unnecessary risks. And some people are. Um, part of the problem is that the evolution of rescue and safety equipment in the avalanche industry, you know, beacons, shovels and probes are kind of the three must have tools. And now you're seeing things like uh, airbags and avalungs and, and that sort of equipment. And there's a, a misconception that every piece you put on is another protective talisman for you. And that's not the case. If you have all that rescue equipment and you lack the knowledge to use it, or every time you buy a better piece of rescue equipment, you increase the level of risk you're willing to take, all that equipment guarantees is that somebody will bring your body home to your family. And, and that's the reality of it. You know, too many people push the risks and, and it's each person can accept or decline as much or as little risk as they want, depending on how aware they are, how educated they are. Um, you know, that's how they make those decisions. So it's, it's you know, with, with my history, with what happened when I was 17 years old, we think pretty long and hard before we, we push the boundaries or push the limits in a, in a high avalanche situation or an yes. increased avalanche situation. Yeah, that's not so, necessarily the case for everybody. Right. So I imagine the most important safety tip for anyone to take away from avalanches is simply to avoid them. Right? Yes. So, 
you know, the number one rule of avoiding risk is if you don't put yourself in a situation in a place where an avalanche can occur, you won't be in one. Yeah. Yeah. So how can people be aware of avalanches? Because obviously we're, this is Kids Who Explore. So yeah. it's often families going out with kids. So we, we really want people to be cautious and be aware and not get themselves in the situation because they're going to usually have their families with them. But yeah, how can they be aware that there will be avalanches, where to look out for them, how to know how far to go and what, what boundaries to push as we were saying? So we're really fortunate here in Western Canada that we've got a fantastic resource in Avalanche Canada. Um, so www.avalanche.ca has got some phenomenal training things that kids can take online courses, uh, YouTube videos, you know, very hands-on, very geared for, for that younger audience, um, as well as, you know, everything to booking an AST level one, which is an avalanche safety technician level one or level two, or even a trainer course. So you can take all of that accreditation. Um, if you're a heli ski guide in BC, you have a minimum of an AST level two, if not instructor level. Because those guys have to read the mountain and make the decision whether it's safe to put clients on it or not. And generally, it would be a team of employed staff working for a heli ski company that would make those decisions on a day-to-day basis. Same things are happening on ski hills. You know, they've got hired professionals. The reason that the lifts aren't open at daylight is because they're still making safety assessments and doing blasting to make sure there is nothing on that hill that is potentially going to catch somebody. Oh, wow. So get that awareness is the first one. If you're new to an area or you're going to ride in a different part of the country you've never been in before, whether it's backcountry, you know, heli skiing, or whether it's, you know, you're hiking up the mountain and boarding down the other side, or you're a snowmobiler, or there's a lot of people now that two guys or three guys on one snowmobile and three boards are heading into the backcountry to hit untracked powder that nobody else is getting into. Um, there is no map that says this hill will kill you. This hill will only kill you when things are bad. And this is a good hill to play on all the time. Those are things that you have to educate yourself on by taking a course and getting the awareness and and recognizing what avalanche terrain looks like and understanding what conditions in the weather make avalanches more likely or less likely. And Avalanche Canada has got, I think, nine forecast regions just in the Rockies. So Waterton Lakes National Park has its own. There's the South Rockies and Lizard Range, which kind of encompass, you know, Crow's Nest and South and a little bit west of Crow's Nest into Elkford and, and Fernie. And then Cay Country has got its own. And then the national parks each have their own. And then there's a few other zones that overlap in between. So you can get an avalanche forecast on any device at any time of day to see what it's going to be like where you're going the next couple of days. Okay, I need to get on that because I when I'm hiking in Kananaskis, even actually spring hike, sometimes Absolutely. there's some areas that, yeah, people don't realize, right? Even in spring, there can be avalanches. And yeah. there's one hike I did where I had friends that wanted to go up and hit the ridge. And I said, you know, the, the snow even just seems so deep to get up there. I don't feel comfortable. And right after we said we weren't going to, we heard two avalanches. It yeah. And it, friends. you know, that's, a, they call it a, a free lesson in life when you get to see something that yes. you could have been in, you know, everybody gets to learn from that, right? So it's, it's that near miss scenario. And in the industry side of things, a near miss is a lesson that everybody can learn from that nobody paid the ultimate price for. Nobody had to go to hospital, nobody had to tie. So one of the problems with backcountry recreationalists and the data that we get in Western Canada is there's a big aversion to admitting you screwed up and had a near miss out there. You know, I was buried up to my waist today. I'm not even telling my wife. Well, that doesn't work because the forecasters have only got a limited amount of time and resources to get out, check different snow pits and make an assessment what the snow safety is. 
if everybody in the backcountry went, hey, I saw a couple of natural slides today on an east-facing slope, roughly 37 degrees, that information would feed into the forecast network and would amplify or decrease the, the risk level for everybody else out there to, to be able to see that. That's such a good point. Okay, so I, after something like that, I would go on All Trails app and do yep. a comment, but where else should people do that? So Avalanche Canada, their website has what they call the MIN, the Mountain Information Network. So when you open Avalanche Canada's website, you'll see the forecast zones, and there's a bunch of little blue teardrops on it. Each of those blue teardrops is a MIN, piece of information somebody has pinned to that location. And it might be best riding conditions ever in October. You know, some guy who climbed the top of the mountain with a snowboard made three runs down bragging, look what I did today. Or it might be, we saw three natural slide here, you know, size two, size three category avalanches, buried the trail, watch out for any of the sun exposed slopes this spring. You know, there's, there's definitely conditions meteorologically that make avalanches more or less likely. So that awareness and education will help you to understand why the forecast says, you know, watch out once the sun comes out this afternoon, or we've had an extended wind loading period, make sure you're looking to see where that wind has deposited extra deep pillows of snow. But that mountain information network is, is a really good place where you can submit the, the knowledge you've gained through the day or things that you've seen, observations you've made, or you can go onto that website and go, okay, I wanna ride, you know, Coal Creek by Fernie today. And you can go, oh, there's three new pins on there, three new min pins on there. So here's the forecast says the danger level is at this, the risk is at this. And then you open up that min and go, oh, these guys say it was way worse, you know, over this hill or in the next basin. So that information is readily available. We just need to get more people to be willing to submit, you know, what they're seeing out there. Yes. Oh, these are such good resources. I'll put these in the show notes too, so people can find yeah. all the things you're talking about. So thank you yeah. so much for that. So if God forbid anyone gets stuck in an avalanche or like we were saying, someone witnesses someone getting stuck in an avalanche, what are the next steps? So the thing you need to realize about an avalanche is 90% of the people who are caught in avalanches, either they or a person in their party triggered it. And you do not have time to go and get help. If you cannot companion rescue somebody involved from your group and get them out of an avalanche, you will be doing a body recovery. The statistics are brutal. It, they used to say after the first 15 minutes, your chances of survival went down by 50%. And then every half hour after that, another 50%. So in the first 15 minutes, you'd be a 50% chance of survival. By 45 minutes in, 25%. By an hour in, you're all of a sudden down to under 10% chance of survivability. Wow. So a lot of the people who die in avalanches have beacons, shovels, probes, airbags, all of their friends have that stuff. Half the people who die in avalanches die from trauma. Those big green baseball bats that grow on hills and those rocks that dump you over the edge of the mountain. It doesn't matter what safety equipment you have and how good you are at companion rescue. If you drop into a train trap and get piled under 15 meters of snow, doesn't matter how many human beings are there with shovels, they can't get to you before your brain starves of oxygen. So it, it's really a bleak, you, you need to kind of understand that, again, either you triggered or somebody in your party triggered it, and you need to get them out and you need to get them out quickly. So that companion rescue and understanding how to do it, that information's all available online. You can take a course. And again, you start at that AST level one, that's your first official weekend course, and they'll show you how to recognize avalanche terrain, how to understand how to avoid it, how to read the forecast, and then physically out in the field, 
How do you do a beacon search to locate somebody else's transceiver? What do you do with your probe once you've located that transceiver? And what is the most effective and fastest way to shovel to get to that person? There's techniques that have evolved over the last 20 years that are saving more lives if everybody knew how to use them. So getting back to your question, you're, somebody in front of you goes down in an avalanche. Your main job as the person standing there is to watch. Where's the last point they're seen? So you know, okay, they're down below that cliff band or they went past that big tree. They're definitely below that because there's no reason to waste time searching above that point. So you've just eliminated a whole bunch of the deposits. So somebody has to take charge and that person should know what they're doing with the equipment they have. Put everybody in a position that they're comfortable with. You are now lookout. You're watching for another avalanche and you're going to warn everybody else because an avalanche transceiver, when you turn it on, when you get out of the truck in the morning, sends a signal. That's all it's doing. Every avalanche transceiver can be set to receive that signal as well. But if you are all standing on top of a debris pile looking for one person who's buried and you've all got your beacons in receive mode and another avalanche comes down, you're not actually sending out a signal for your own recovery. So there are beacons that will go back to send mode after a set period of time with no motion, but they're the higher price point and that isn't generally the first one that people will buy and all, right. right? So again, that recovery comes down to watching and looking, seeing where they were last. There are effective patterns for searching with beacons. They have a maximum range of about 90 meters. So you want to search kind of a zigzag over and down from the top down if you're above where that person went into the slide. If you're a snowmobiler, very often you're below that point. So you're having to search your way up the debris pile, which is much more difficult, obviously. But skiers and boarders tend to be above watching somebody below them. And if there's a bunch of people, they can spread out 50 meters apart and come down in two or three lines parallel to each other until somebody picks up that signal. So those techniques are not things you want to be trying for the first time when you witnessed right. an avalanche, obviously. So that the awareness of what terrain looks like and how to avoid it is number one lesson to take. The second one is get educated. Whether you just take all the online courses you can find and go through the tutorials and figure out how to do it and read the manual that comes with your, your avalanche equipment or take an official training course. That's, that's the bare minimum you have to have if you want to consider yourself competent in the backcountry for sure. Right. Okay, well, you've inspired me to it. So I'm like, when can I start? <laughs> well, go to www.avalanche.ca. They'll tell you all the teachers and providers in your area. You'll be able to contact anybody who's around and they'll be able to tell you when the nearest next course is. Okay. So they're, they're really good at making sure that they share that information with the public. Okay. Thank you so much for all of this. So <laughs> you said you have two kids and they take part in your outdoor adventures. Yeah. How, how did you talk to them about winter safety? Like, do you have any advice for how to talk to kids about it and what to do in regards to that? Well, it, it, it kind of carries over from, you know, you start taking your kids camping and you talk about safety around the fire. You talk about wild animal safety and, and that progresses into winter safety, you know, understanding how to dress properly so that you don't have that weird waxy spot on your cheek and are uncomfortable for four or five days. You know, <laughs> the kids don't like to listen to their parents once they get to be teenagers for sure. But, you know, you take the time and equip them and, and lead by example, you know, here's why I'm stopping here. I'm, I want to have a look and see or do you notice that hill has got, you know, pinwheels starting to come down. That snow is showing signs of instability. Mm -hmm. And then you can say every slope that has that same angle everywhere out here in the mountains, that same 38, 42 degree angle, same exposure to the sun, 
going to have the exact same instability problem. So you start teaching them the signs that mother nature will give you. Um, and then you start talking about, okay, here's how a beacon works. My kids haven't taken their first official training course yet. Uh, my daughter doesn't have a lot of interest in snowmobiling. My son certainly does. So it has very much changed my willingness to take risk when we're out together. You know, it, there's all of a sudden a whole another burden on me. It's like, okay, well, I would go over there if it was me and my buddies. But now that I got, you know, my, my son with me, okay, we're going to double think and okay, am I making the right decision? And, you know, we're going to practice the same group safety techniques when you're crossing avalanche terrain as you would, whether it was your, your dad or your sister or the guy you didn't like. So, you know, you, you just yeah. work with them to build. I always say you build that toolbox. The more tools you can put in it and teach them how to use, the better equipped they are. Yeah. Okay. And then this isn't related to winter safety necessarily, but we always get questions about people adventuring with their kids that are close in age and it doesn't get any closer in age than twins. Nope. It <laughs> so does not. Do you have any tips or what you did when they were really young and you were going out on adventures with them or going camping with them? Anything you can think of from 15 years ago? <laughs> you know, we, we had a boy and a girl. So we, we already had the dog. We had the Plutonic family just like that when the twins showed up. So yeah. uh, we didn't really treat them very differently. You know, we let them in enjoy what they wanted to and not what they didn't want to, you know, and, and sometimes it was dirty day out camp and they wanted to play in the mud by all means, go play in the mud, build a, build a pyramid out of pine cones and, you know, put that down. Cause that's actually a horse apple. That's that poop. You don't want to be playing yeah. with that. Whatever you have to teach them. Right. But you know, the thing with twins, that's very different than regular siblings. And I have an older and a younger sibling. You don't have the same dynamic with twins because they're the same age. They're doing the same things. They're developing at the same time. So they're besties when they're little. And if it was two boys or two girls, it probably would still be that way at 15. But as girls start to mature both intellectually and sexually a little faster, yeah. they don't want to spend time with their little brother who's yeah. the same age, <laughs> but hasn't evolved the same maturity yet. So there's a bit of a fight right. there. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, just let them be best friends and do it together and get them outside. That's We're all yeah. about getting kids outside. So you're saying it's very doable. <laughs> yeah, let them get dirty. Let them figure it out for themselves. You know, it works good. Oh, so good. Okay, well, today has been amazing. You've inspired me to go take a course. Is there anything else you want to share about avalanches or winter safety or anything else? I, I think the only other thing to really touch on with winter safety is, you know, there, there's some things I use in my courses that people aren't aware of. If you're a motorsports enthusiast, you know, you can drive farther on a snowmobile in 15 minutes than you can walk back in eight hours. You know, so that that ability to travel over snow at high speeds, and that doesn't matter whether it's a groomed trail or whether you're riding in the mountains. And, and on a on a wheeled vehicle, it's, they normally say it's an hour. You can go farther in an hour on a on an ATV or a UTV or a motorbike than you can walk back in a day. So from a, a risk awareness standpoint, what we're really pushing on the search and rescue side of things now isn't how prepared are you, how much not how many gadgets you have and how much safety training you have and, and how big's your first aid kit. The question you should be asking yourself is how long until somebody could get where I am and help me if I get into trouble? Yes. So it's dark and stormy and windy and blowing snow in the dead of winter. They're not flying a helicopter in to get you out. You know, you, you need to have the ability and equipment to shelter up and, and overnight. And if it's a, a family you're out with, you need to think about what sort of things you need to keep them comfortable overnight too. So it's yeah. that th the mentality isn't, well, I got my cell phone and I got my spot and I got my inReach and I got some other satellite communication. I'll be fine. Well, will you be fine for the four and a half hours it takes for another human being to get to where you are to help you yeah. or eight hours, depending on the situation. Right. Right. So yeah, we want people but, to get outside safely to learn and to yeah. avoid. 
and be prepared. That's the big thing. Like, you, you know, so often in search and rescue, what we find is somebody either got involved with a group that had way more ambitious goals than that person was capable of. And then they get themselves into trouble. You know, they start to get hypothermic or they, they start to get fatigued. And then that leads to a lot of problems for everybody else, or they're unwilling to speak up and say, listen, I don't think that that Ridge is a good place to be climbing right now, based on how much snow is moving or what I see going on. Like, you know, I'm not the leader of this group. I'm not the most educated. I'm not the guy who organized this. And anybody in a group, whether they're six or 66, should be able to say, I don't know that this is a real good idea. Why don't we, you know, scale it back a little bit? I'm feeling a little under the weather. Or I didn't bring my rain gear today and I see the weather starting to turn on us. Just be able to speak up and you have to be willing to, to take that information from whoever you have with you that day. Yeah. And in some of those cases, like in the case of the story I told you with the Ridge, to listen to your gut, your gut sometimes yep. will tell you, right, if it yep. doesn't feel right. Well, and, and it's not a peer pressure thing, but certainly with my kids and my twins, well, if you can do it, I can do it. Yes. <laughs> you know, like there's that one upmanship and I guess it's genetic. Cause I had that with my brother too, yeah. but you kind of got to rein that in a little bit, you know, like you got kids that you get a little light backpack on when they're out in the country and they're running and jumping and diving over logs and rocks. It's like, well, let's just dial that back from 10 to seven. Yeah. Because I can't carry you back to the truck if you sprain your ankle or break your leg or get that stick jabbing you in the elbow. You know, you, you just have to talk. Here, here's the real world possibility. If things go sideways, it's going to be really bad for a long time. Right, right, right. Okay, well, so where can everyone find you to find out more and follow along? Because they, they can also learn from you, right? You well, like I said, I, I'm a, I teach those official courses. So that's my capacity as an instructor now is the ATV, UTV, and, and snowmobile safety. And I kind of teach those in the south half of the province. I've been as far north as uh, Edmonton teaching snowmobile safety before. And there are a lot of instructors like myself throughout the province that teach um, the... the um, Oh, just lost the name of my provincial organization, the Alberta Safety Council, which okay. is a member of the Canada Safety Council, will have a list of all accredited instructors. So if you live in, you know, Bizano and you're looking for somebody near you, or if you live in, in Fox Creek and you look at somebody near you, you can contact them, go through their website, and you should be able to find an instructor and you can contact the organization and say, okay, is this guy got three years experience or has he got 35 years experience? I want to make sure I'm getting the best of the best. Right. And that's probably the best way um, you know, to, to find somebody to give you the training you're looking for is to go through a, a provincial body because, you know, it's a big province and you might be in BC, you might be in Saskatchewan. I don't know where you're listening from today. So, you know, you have that option. Um, I teach my snowmobile safety course for the Alberta Snowmobile Association, Alberta Learning and Portage College, who I'm accredited through. So I'm, I'm available through their resources if you're looking for somebody. But anytime you say, okay, well, I think we should learn more about side-by-side -side safety. Go to that provincial organization, go to your local club. They will point you to a, a resource that's near you or have the information to get that to somebody who can get it to you. Okay, perfect. And again, I will link all that up so people can check in the show notes and get all of those links. So let's end with our rapid fire questions. In the okay. last few months, what was the best purchase you made under $100? I bought a new phone case because I'm really hard on stuff in the outdoors. So I, I've been using LifeProof for a long time, but they've been starting to get more and more pricey. Um, so I went to this, a, a new, much cheaper version. It's a, a Mitiwa, but it's, you know, it's an aluminum case, that is a fully waterproof. 
rubber seals and I've dropped it. It bounces. So it's doing its job already. I'm quite happy with that. Well, I need a waterproof because <laughs> as I said, now that I'm in Seattle, Washington, I've been rain and rain. So yep. good suggestion. <laughs> Can you share a book, show, or podcast recommendation right now? I really enjoy a podcast called The Huberman Lab. Um, he's a neuropsychologist who shares like science hacks that'll help you sleep better, that'll make your metabolism better, that'll help you learn better, that are based on science. So he, it's a little technical sometimes, but he's sharing information that he's gathering from the science community for no charge, no cost, so that people can have better lives. Oh, so cool. That is fantastic. Okay. Yeah. And then lastly, if there was no time or money limit, where would you travel or explore now? I have always wanted to see the, the pyramids of Giza and then jump over to see the biggest pyramid, and that's Everest. So there's a big stretch between those two, but to, to see some of the world's wonders for sure. Yes. Oh, that's such a good answer. Okay. Well, thank you for everything today. This has been wonderful. Hopefully everyone's been inspired to go learn more and yeah, and be safe. <laughs> yeah. Take a course, get trained, get aware, get educated. Yes. Okay. Thanks, Rezo. All right. Thank you. Thanks for adventuring with us. Please subscribe and share your love by reviewing our podcast with five stars and follow us over at Kids Who Explore on Instagram and all other social media platforms.